What if I told you that Judaism's greatest philosopher, Moses Maimonides, believed that Judaism's ancient mystery tradition, with all of her secrets, had been lost to the sands of time, and had taken it upon himself to reconstruct them on his own from scratch? Maimonides is known as the great Jewish rationalist of the Middle Ages, but his rationalism goes a lot deeper than most might suspect. Maimonides, it seems, was a rationalist who believed that through the very tools of philosophy, through a perfect synthesis of mysticism and rationalism, he could rediscover the lost secret traditions of ancient Jewish mysticism and uncover the true meaning of the Hebrew Bible. Join us in this final episode, where we hope to, for once and for all, answer the question of whether Maimonides was a rationalist or a mystic, and find out what he was really up to in his Guide for the Perplexed. I hope you enjoy. Hey Seekers, what's up? Welcome back. We're going to split this class into two parts. Before getting to the juicy stuff about the lost secrets of Judaism, we're going to try recapping the core theme of the series Maimonides' Rational Mysticism. If you'd like to skip ahead to the fun parts of the video where we get to the secrets, you can skip ahead to this point, but this first part is going to be important and hopefully fun as well. Let's begin then by presenting Maimonides' rationalism to understand exactly what is meant by that term when speaking of a 12th century philosopher like Maimonides, because unlike today, where rationalism has come to imply a belief in science, a rejection of religion, and some form of atheism or agnosticism, in Maimonides' medieval context, the word rationalism means something entirely different. Firstly, and perhaps most importantly, Maimonides is a religious rationalist, who believes, or at least professes to believe, along with his religious contemporaries of the Middle Ages, that reason is the handmaiden to theology, that philosophy is there to assist, prove, and improve religion. We can see that Maimonides' religion is prior to and shapes his rationalism in what he sets as his ultimate goal. To state it here briefly because we've already laid it out in great detail throughout the series, for Maimonides, the ultimate goal in life is to know God, a knowledge which consists of knowing that one cannot know God, because ultimately God is unknowable. But nonetheless, the knowledge which he strives for is a knowledge which unites the knower with the known, the human with God, and a knowledge which compels the knower to act like the known, to live a life imbued with divine levels of loving-kindness, compassion, justice, and righteousness. Maimonides' rationalism works in partnership with his vision of Judaism, which he sees as entirely preoccupied with the effort to steer the individual away from idolatry towards a correct knowledge of God, an effort which Maimonides finds supported by the best science and philosophy, physics, and metaphysics of his day. Maimonides, throughout his life, wages a philosophical war against any and all idolatry, and succeeds in persuading the Jewish world for once and for all that God is incorporeal, that God has no body, is one and indivisible, is beyond any human categories, and that all that we can say about God is that God is that which necessarily exists, in whose being, essence, and existence coincide and coexist. More than that, Maimonides says, nothing can be said. In addition to his war and idolatry, which Maimonides sees as an entirely irrational belief, Maimonides, the metaphysical doctor, 
sets his scopes on a host of other ailments of the mind plaguing the people of his day, and he works tirelessly to combat these things, things like unreflective religious practice, biblical and rabbinic literalism, anthropocentrism, anthropomorphism, materialism, and superstition. The cure to all of these, in Maimonides' opinion, was religious rationalism, and he employs it as such, both to the masses through his Mishnah Torah and to the elite through his Guide for the Perplexed. Maimonides begins his legal magnum opus, the Mishnah Torah, not as most other great works of Jewish law, which begin chronologically, but rather he begins logically, from first principles and first philosophy, namely metaphysics and theology, laying out what he sees as the fundamentals of Judaism, and he goes on to depict Abraham and Moses as the philosophical founders of the faith. Turning next to his philosophical work, the Mora Nebuchim, the Guide for the Perplexed, we can see the supreme value of rationalism and the proper knowledge of God that it ensures running like a golden thread right throughout the guide, from its very first chapter in which we're told that the rational human intellect is the exclusive image of God bestowed upon Adam in the Garden of Eden, making rationality the very thing by which we are called human, and that which is our true essence. In this position, we can see Maimonides following Aristotle's classic formulation of the human as the rational animal, rationality being the very thing which differentiates us from the animal kingdom and makes us human, in whose expression, realization, and unfolding lies the true eudaimonia, the true happiness and flourishing of the individual, to which all other aims and perfections are subordinated, for the rest merely serve to bring us to the highest aim, the perfect rational contemplation of the perfect goodness, which for Maimonides, and perhaps also for Aristotle, is God. This line of thinking runs right throughout the guide, which ends by repeating this description of the rational intellect as our bond to God, as that which emanates from God, and that which raises us back to God, by which we achieve our highest perfection, and even, perhaps, eternal life. The logic of this notion of the intellect being the bridge and link between us and God, as we explained in the series, is that for Maimonides, as for his fellow Neo-Aristotelians, the mechanics of knowing something function such that to know something is to unite one's mind with the object and act of contemplation, the union of the knower, the knowing, and the known, or the threefold unity of the intellects as it's known. Therefore, according to Maimonides, to contemplate unceasingly upon a perfect conception of God, a perfect contemplation on a perfect conception of the perfect being, is to unite with the object of one's contemplation, or in simple English, to achieve union or at the very least communion with God, or with the divine cosmic intellect mediating between us and God, namely the active intellect. This epistemic doctrine, this theory of knowledge, that Maimonides gets from Aristotle, effectively converts Maimonides' ultimate goal in life, the supreme philosophical ideal of the knowledge of God, his one and only true goal, which he thinks is worth pursuing, into an explicitly religious activity, one of communion with God, from a merely philosophical concept, into an explicitly religious activity of communion with God, a sublation of values from philosophy 
to theology, trending in the direction of where he would like his rationalism to take him. Additionally, by merging knowledge of God with union with God, Maimonides, particularly in the final climactic chapters of the guide, intentionally conflates these three things. One, the knowledge of God which is mankind's highest goal and felicity, with number two, the bliss experienced in communion with God, and with three, the beatitude, the love and passionate desire, the cheshek or ishk, which fills the individual who unites their mind with God, those three notions, knowledge, bliss, and passionate love, become fused into one object for Maimonides, seeing it as the final goal to which we aspire. In his description of this communion with God, writes Julius Gutmann, the whole religious spirituality of Maimonides unfolds itself. In those last few chapters of the guide, which deal with it, the otherwise sober and matter-of-fact style of the work rises to a passionate adore. This is all the more effective as it is still restrained by dispassionate logical thought. Indeed, logical thought becomes here itself expression of religious emotion. Maimonides' version of rationality and intellectualism is strikingly different than the way those same words are understood following the European Enlightenment and in contemporary culture. Rationalism for Maimonides, simply put, is a tool for uniting with God, the ultimate object of one's thinking. For Maimonides, at least on his more optimistic readings, rationality brings us to the truth, to that which is real. And, ultimately, on his reading, it is only God who is real and uncontingent. The picture of rationality that Maimonides develops is much closer to the biblical idea of wisdom called Chachma and the Greek idea of Sophia. What we find in both the biblical and in the Greek wisdom traditions is the belief that education and the accumulation of knowledge was not a matter merely of conveying information from teacher to pupil, as it's so often understood today, but was rather a transformative process, by which the student was challenged into dialogue to evoke the truth that they already contained deep within themselves. The same is true for Maimonides. The ultimate goal of his philosophy is not that the reader should merely know the truth, namely God for him, but that we should radically be transformed by the truth which we already know. Just like the biblical knowing, which goes to the core of one's being, which lengthens one's days and propels one to act with mercy and justice, or like the knowing conveyed in the ancient Greek mysteries, not mere theoretical knowledge, but a numinous secret which transforms the individual from darkness to light, bestowing upon them a sense of deathlessness and immortality. As we discussed in the previous episode, Maimonides sees the ultimate transformation brought about by rational inquiry and the knowledge of God to be an ethical transformation of the individual into an imitation of the object of their contemplation, namely God. Following the biblical words of the prophet Jeremiah, Maimonides closes his guide with these words. The perfection in which one can truly glorify is to know God as much as humanly possible, and as a result, one will be constantly committed to seek loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness, imitating the ways of God. 
as our sages say, says Maimonides a little earlier, just as God is gracious, so shall you be gracious, just as God is merciful, so shall you be merciful. This is the ultimate goal, in Maimonides' opinion, to which humankind can aspire. Maimonides' religious rationalism, to summarize what we've been saying till now, was nothing other than a means of exercising and expressing that which he saw as the divine and the immortal within mankind, namely the intellect, whose highest function was to bring the human back into union and communion with the highest good, with God, to exercise their minds in the love of God and consequently to love one another with divine levels of compassion and kindness. Maimonides' rational intellectualism is not separate from his ethical, spiritual, or mystical life. They go hand in hand, fitting snugly like fingers in a glove. There is no conflict in Maimonides' mind between rationalism and mysticism when properly defined. There is no confrontation between them in his philosophy. His rationalism is mystical, and his mysticism is rational. As Gideon Freudenthal puts it, it's not that Maimonides was a rational philosopher who happened to be a mystic, but rather that his philosophy is both thoroughly rational and thoroughly mystical at one and the same time. One of the primary reasons, I believe, that people don't associate Maimonides with mysticism is because I think people have a very poor understanding and poor definition of what mysticism is. People tend to think that mysticism means something otherworldly, nebulous, esoteric, occult, magical, or supernatural. And Maimonides was certainly no fan of mysticism, if it's being defined as such. He was quite a vocal opponent and vociferous critic of supernaturalism, superstition, and magical thinking, taking aim against religious practices which he felt undermined the purity of Judaism and insulted the God-given rationality of the human mind. Maimonides, the doctor, philosopher, and rabbi, had no sympathy for religious faith healers who claimed to heal people with their supernatural powers, magic amulets, and talismans, and the magical uses of names of God. Do not let occur to your mind, writes Maimonides, the vain imaginings of those who write amulets, which they think work miracles. They are fables which are not fit for a perfected person to listen to, much less believe. Of what then did Maimonides' mysticism consist, since it was most certainly not the mumbo-jumbo passing his mysticism both then and now? In what way was Maimonides' philosophy properly mystical? What follows is effectively going to be again a summary of the case that we've been making for Maimonides' mysticism throughout the series, tracing out in the felicitous words of Itamar Grunwald the mystical thread artfully woven into the philosophical texture of Maimonides' writings. So, if any of these following points seem far-fetched or hard to believe, I recommend going back to the earlier episodes for each of the points laid out here to see them in full with sources and citation, both to Maimonides' own works and to the work of the scholars who have studied him. The core of Maimonides' religious philosophical orientation, as we began to say, is in the human quest for the knowledge of God. Now, attempting to know God in and of itself isn't necessarily a mystical thing to do, but in the case of Maimonides, as we've been saying, working as he is with an Aristotelian theory of knowledge, whereby, in the act of cognition, the thinking subject, the thought object, and the activity of thinking become one, or are one, the threefold unity of the intellect, on such a logic, on such an epistemology, 
knowing God is no mere comprehension or memorization of theological propositions, but it is rather a deeply intimate merger whereby the human mind, via the bond of the intellect, the active intellect, unites itself with God. Maimonides refers to this union, which for him is the highest goal of human life and the pinnacle of all religious worship, as intellectual worship, which is characterized by an all-consuming passion of the lover for the beloved, a love of God proportionate to one's apprehension of God, which one can never really know, illuminating the mind with a lovesickness for God which one can never really fulfill, sought out in the depths of silent, solitary, unceasing meditation and devotion, which leads to a metaphorical or literal death of the body and the subjugation of all one's other desires, purifying their soul to receive the highest level of prophecy, the divine intellectual overflow uniting the mind with God through the immortal, eternal bond of the intellect. And even becoming, in certain rare cases, that immortal, eternal, cosmic intellect itself. What Maimonides describes here, I think we may call a properly mystical union. Not only does Maimonides espouse an all-consuming, passionate, and even at times erotic conception of de Vecut, union or communion with God in his philosophy, particularly in Guide 351, as we've discussed, but in all likelihood, it's from precisely these passages that many a subsequent mystic in Jewish history derive their own theories and formulations of mystical dveikot, union with God, which stands both true for someone like Abraham Abelafia, a Kabbalist following on the heels of Maimonides, who had a lifetime obsession really with Maimonides' guide, teaching it to a whole new generation of students, and writing no less than three full commentaries on the guide, which according to Edel is the most commentaries written, at least in that period, by anyone. And true as well for Maimonides' own son, Abraham, who continued flowering his father's mysticism in Egypt in a strongly Sufi direction with his guide to serving God, Hamasbik Leiv Dashem, Kitab Kifayat al Abdin, check out the video from our friend Philip over at Let's Talk Religion on that, all the way down to the Hasidic mystics of the 18th century and onwards, who quote Maimonides almost verbatim in their own formulations of their idea of Dveikut, this union with God, which is so central to their religious philosophy, either with or without citing their source. Coming back to Maimonides, though, this union of the human mind with God isn't just some bizarre religious philosophical phenomena that rests alone sitting somewhere on some weird peripheral summit of Maimonidean thought, but this idea actually permeates his entire religious philosophy with deep implications for almost all areas of his religious thought. The fundamental logic of Maimonides' mysticism, facilitating this union of the human mind with God, as expressed in both his epistemology and cosmology, his theory of knowledge, and his schema of the cosmos, is what underpins and activates his theories of revelation and prophecy, providence and the afterlife, resurrection and the world to come, and his messianism, most of which we got to spell out in detail during our series. As we've been saying, this idea, this aspiration and capacity of the human mind to unite with the chain of cosmic intellects and potentially even God is no obscure Maimonidean doctrine, but a core of his religious thinking, without which 
most of it would simply cease to function or make sense at all. It would simply fall apart without the central mystical notion which holds it all together. The contention that we're making here is that not only is there a presence of mysticism in Maimonides' religious philosophy, mysticism in this context meaning specifically the ecstatic union of the human intellect with the divine intellect, but that there simply is no Maimonidean religious philosophy without this mysticism. And all of this is achieved without needing to deviate at all from his religious rationalism, giving us simultaneously a truly rationalistic mysticism and a mystical rationalism, entirely consistent and coherent within Maimonides' philosophical and scientific framework of his day. I came across a really beautiful, succinct summary of what we've been saying thus far. It's one short sentence paraphrasing Rav Shagar, Rabbi Shimon Gershon Rosenberg's reading of Maimonides, which goes as follows. Maimonides was one who sought out unification, mystical eros, through intimate knowledge, because in his thought, to understand something is to identify with it. Beautiful, short, sweet, and to the point. To understand something is to identify with it, to become one with it. And when the object that we're uniting with is God, what we get from that equation is mysticism. And in the case of Maimonides, an erotic mysticism conceived in a kiss of intimate knowledge and giving birth to a divine consciousness of kindness and immortality. But that is all only on the positive, cataphatic side of the coin, the side on which something of God may be actually understood and known by the human and thereby united with, cataphatic simply meaning positive or affirmative, that which can be spoken of, in this case, of God. But there is an entirely second side to Maimonides' mysticism, as we've discussed, namely his negative or apophatic mysticism, from apophasis, that which cannot be said of God, of a God about whom nothing positive at all may be affirmed, a God whom we can only negate ourselves towards as we fumble through the darkness. And here again, on the dark side, we see Maimonides being properly mystical. Maimonides, along with many great mystics, affirms that the human mind is fundamentally limited and capped in its ability to comprehend and communicate that which is categorically other than it, namely God, the necessary existence. That Maimonides preaches a thoroughly mystical conception of God, one which is beyond all human comprehension, is not surprising, now that we know who Maimonides' philosophical sources were. In this case, for example, his negative conception of God, we can say fairly certainly, is derived from the philosophical mystical school of Neoplatonism, which developed a rich tradition of negative theology, which Maimonides, in good neo-Aristotelian fashion, following the Muslim philosopher tradition combining Aristotle and Plato through Plotinus, continues with his exquisite accounts of God's overwhelming brilliant presence which dazzles the mind as the sun blinds the eye, leaving the human in a deep mystical silence in the face of the grand mystery we call God. To you, silence is praise, writes Maimonides. Maimonides, to quote my friend Jeff Radin, and to digest what we've been saying till now, is not only a rationalistic mystic, but also an agnostic mystic. His agnosticism, his belief that the human cannot ever truly know God, is an expression of his rationalism, 
when it realizes the limits of human reason, and his mysticism is an expression of both his rationalism and his agnosticism, both its positive and negative forms. One mind torn between rationally reaching for unitive knowledge of a knowing God through the intellect, while the other half lost in the stormy night, chasing a God beyond all categories that cannot be known, leaving the individual, Maimonides, in silent worship, knowing that all he can know is that he cannot know. And like earlier, ultimately our highest knowing, which is unknowing, for we can know nothing of God's essence, leads us to emulate that which we can know of God, namely God's attributes of action extrapolated from the observable activity of God, of which Maimonides following the prophet Jeremiah and the sages of Judaism highlights God's loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. And in imitating these, in imitating God, in being ourselves godly, we come to know all that there is to know, all that we can know, that the most divine thing in existence is kindness. To summarize a little, Maimonides' religious philosophy, both in its negative and positive formulations, as we've seen, is marked by a profound yearning for an intimate relationship with God, a yearning which expresses itself in a consuming love for God, in a desire to know and become one with God, whether or not he believes that to be ultimately possible, a desire which overflows into a thirst for science and philosophy, physics and metaphysics, as much as for ethics and kindness, justice and righteousness. A proper reading of Maimonides and his guide, then, is not as one or the other, either as a form of rationalism or mysticism, but rather as a grand synthesis of the two. For Maimonides, the peak of rational philosophical enlightenment, knowledge of God, is not other than the peak of his religious mystical journey, wherein the person transcends their own body and unites their mind with the intellectual flux overflowing from God, transforming themselves into a divine cosmic intellect and an agent of loving kindness and justice. These are not two separate goals for Maimonides, one rational and the other mystical, they are one and the same. As Gideon Frodenthal puts it, in Maimonides' thought, philosophy itself becomes a mode of worship leading towards mystical union. Cognition of the divine, worship and religious experience coincide. Rational philosophy and mysticism are not opposed to each other, nor do they merely coexist, but they are two aspects of the same contemplative activity. The relationship in Maimonides' mind between mysticism and rationalism is not merely one of mutual toleration or even mutual coexistence, but rather one of mutual benefit and enrichment, with each one enriching the other. Maimonides' mysticism invigorates his rationalism, it brings it to life, and it keeps it and his theology from being mere theologumenon and propositional posturing, while his philosophical rationalism works to keep his mysticism in check, saving it from the excesses of magical thinking, superstition, and hocus-pocus. Maimonides' desire to cultivate a passionate love for God, reaching for a union with the beloved, does not come at the expense of his philosophical integrity, intellectual honesty, and rigorous rationality. And although an unbridled pursuit of mystical experiences and visions is indeed a tempting and seductive prospect, Maimonides insists that our journey towards the divine must be bounded, nurtured, and guided simultaneously by a quest for perfect intellection, a healthy body, a rich imagination, and upright morals, as well as by a radical humility and acknowledgement of the very real limits of the human mind. 
It is only then that any real possibility of coming into a genuine awareness of divinity and encounter with the presence of God. Otherwise, what we're left with, when mysticism is left to go unchecked off its own rails, what we encounter, according to Maimonides' account, is not God, but simply the figments and idols of our own imagination. Just as in Neoplatonism, the philosophical tradition from which Maimonides unwittingly draws much of his philosophy, rationalism and mysticism are not pitted against one another, but they are rather seen as representing two complementary modes of knowing, the rational mode of logic and reasoning, and the mystical mode of intuition. Intuition, which is native to the mystic, is not inferior to the discursiveness of the logician. Intuition can lead the philosopher to even higher states than discursive reasoning can. But in the end, the supreme perfection belongs to one who has mastered both. It is this intersection of rationalism and mysticism which might just take us into the very heart of what Maimonides is really up to in his Guide to the Perplexed. Alexander Altman, a great early scholar of Jewish mysticism, in his brilliant reading of the Guide, uncovers a crisis of epic proportions, which he believes Maimonides aimed to solve with his text. And this, by the way, is just the elaboration and expansion of one gem in Altman's essay. I recommend you go read it for yourself in all of its bizarre, brilliant glory. Just to give you a bit of the backstory before we launch into what's happening in Maimonides' text. It is one of the core beliefs of Judaism, insofar as there are any, that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people through Moses at Mount Sinai. However, in addition to the laws given by God to Moses at Sinai, Jewish tradition has it that Moses, alongside the law, also received the correct interpretation of the law. Although, unlike the law which was written down for the people, which came to be known as the Torah Shebikhtav, the written Torah in the form of the Chumash, the five books of Moses, the correct interpretation of the law, either in the form of its principles or its content, was intended not to be written down, but rather transmitted verbally and memorized, coming to be known as the Torah Shbalpeh, the oral Torah, which according to Jewish tradition, was passed down verbally from teacher to student, from parent to child, from one generation to the next, and that's how it was intended. The Torah was to be comprised of two halves, which made one whole, the written Torah handed down from generation to generation by ink and parchment, and the accompanying oral Torah, which was forbidden from being written down, passed down from generation to generation by mouth and ear. However, around the year 200 CE, some 1500 years after the giving of the Torah at Sinai, a crisis which threatened the organic generational chain of transmission of the oral Torah occurred. Under brutal Roman occupation and persecution in Judea, it was feared that the oral transmission of the Torah would be lost, as more and more of the geniuses of Israel, the living repositories of the living word of God, were being lost to the edge of the Roman sword. In the midst of this crisis, a man by the name of Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the prince, the president of the Sanhedrin, took it upon himself to collect all records of the oral law, which had been passed down some 35 generations since Moses, violating the Torah in order to save it, doing precisely what was forbidden, compiling the oral law into one written text, which came to be comprised of six volumes, Zroi, Moed, Nashim, Nezikin, Kodshim, and Taris, which became known collectively as the Mishnah, 
effectively saving the Torah by violating it so that we would still have it today, 1800 years later. However, these two halves, the written and the oral Torah, taking eventual form as the Chumash and the Mishnah, are only half the story. According to Jewish tradition, both these halves combined only contained, as it were, half of the Torah, the body of the Torah, the outer exoteric half of the Torah. However, according to the tradition, there's an entire second half of the Torah, perfectly mirroring its outer half, namely the inner half, the esoteric half of the Torah, referred to as Nishmasa de'Araisa, the soul of the Torah. The inner soul and secret of the Torah, according to the tradition, were also taught to Moses by God at Sinai, and was likewise passed down orally from master to disciple under very strict secretive conditions, whispered from one generation to the next, under the cloak of immense secrecy and privacy, only to a small circle of initiates in each generation, and only told to one new student at a time after an extended period of observation and examination, deeming them to be worthy to partake of and safeguard the secrets. And even then, they were only told the chapter headings of the secrets, the merest hints gesturing towards them, and needed to figure out the rest for themselves, if they were capable of that. The culminative traditions of these secrets of the Torah, the inner meaning of the text of the Bible, came to be collectively known as Ma'aseh Bereshit and Ma'aseh Merkava, the secret workings of creation and of the divine chariot, the former in reference to the secrets encoded in the creation narrative at the beginning of the book of Genesis, and the latter to the secrets hidden in the account of the divine chariot, as recounted in the first chapter of the book of Ezekiel. These traditions respectively, Ma'aseh Bereshit and Ma'aseh Merkava, were said to contain the secrets of creation, of how and why God brings the world into being, and the secrets of the cosmos, how, through the various cosmic entities and gradations, angels and worlds, God manifests in and maintains the universe in existence, and how one may encounter God through it. Maimonides, in the second chapter of his Mishnah Torah, speaks of these traditions of Ma'aseh Merkava and Ma'aseh Bereshit with utmost seriousness, calling them extremely profound matters, which not every mind can bear, subjects which he writes, are the secrets of the world. Now here comes the crazy part of the story. Judah the prince feared that the transmission of the oral Torah would be ruptured and lost in the travails and tribulations of persecution and exile, prompting him to preserve the verbal tradition of Judaism in the written form of the Mishnah. But what are the inner secrets of the Torah? whose conditions for transmission were even tighter and more secretive than the oral Torah, which was taught openly to every child. Was there another like Judah the Prince, who had taken the princely effort to transmit these secrets to writings? Maimonides, writing some thousand years after Judah the Prince redacted the Mishnah, Maimonides, the master of Jewish text and thought, the man whose very words set the parameters and defined what was canon in so many areas of Judaism, that same Maimonides writes, that horror of all horrors, the inner soul of Judaism, the secrets of the Torah, had actually been lost to the sands of time, that there had been, in his opinion, no equivalent to Judah the Prince who wrote down the secrets of the Torah. Quote, this knowledge has totally disappeared from the nation of Israel, nothing is to be found of it, neither much nor little. It seems from what we know that Maimonides tried his hardest to salvage and rescue fragments and texts whispers and rumors to try and reconstruct the lost traditions, 
some kind of attempt to recreate Judah the Prince's collection and compilation project of the Mishnah, but was unable to, seeing that he was about a thousand years too late for that. That Maimonides tried to salvage these traditions is evident from his project to ascertain the veracity of ostensibly ancient Jewish mystical texts, such as the Shirkoima of the Hechalot literature, but concludes ultimately, perhaps regretfully but brazenly, that they were all just Byzantine-era forgeries. Seeing no way to find these lost secrets, and knowing that Judaism would be solaced and lost herself without them, Maimonides took it upon himself to reconstruct these secrets anew. But how does one reconstruct an ancient secret tradition that's been lost and taken the secrets to her grave with her? Even a reincarnation of Judah the Prince couldn't do much with it at that point. Maimonides knew that what it would take would be nothing less than a new Moses, Isaiah, or Ezekiel, nothing short of a rebirth of prophecy to rehear the secrets whispered straight from the mouth of God. Some scholars believe that that was precisely the route which Maimonides opted for, striving himself for a new prophetic revelation, and encoded within his guide not only the content of his new revelation, but also, get this, the steps for his reader to train themselves to receive prophecy too, a 12th century guidebook to revelation. Now, I'll admit that as bizarre as this theory sounds, there's actually good reason to find it quite plausible, both because of Maimonides' rational conception of prophecy, conflating as it does the highest reaches of intellection with prophecy, and because of the rational mystical conceptions of prophecy, which follows on from Maimonides in people who saw themselves as his disciples, most notably Abraham of Alafia, which shows some sort of proof or concept at least for this Maimonidean prophetic project, both in content and as a guide for the future. But we're not going to follow this prophetic hypothesis for present purposes, as exciting as it is. Rather, we're going to follow the lead of Alexander Altman, who, in his bizarre and brilliant essay on Maimonides' attitude towards Jewish mysticism, argues that Maimonides was up to something slightly different with the guide. That rather than using prophecy as his modus operandi to rediscover the lost secrets, the mysteries of Judaism, Maimonides, according to Altman, propelled by his belief that the secret traditions had been lost, took it upon himself to reconstruct the tradition afresh and rediscover the secrets on his own, without prophecy. How exactly does Maimonides go about restoring and reinventing the esoteric traditions of Judaism? He does so by the power of his God-given intellect and with the tools of rationality and philosophy, working to combine and reinterpret what little faint hints and traces were left behind by the prophets and the mystics together with what was demonstrably true in philosophy. Maimonides, in order to reconstruct the lost truths and secrets of the Torah without assuming for present purposes recourse to prophecy, positions himself as the sage, the chacham, the philosopher, whom, according to the Talmud, is greater than the prophet. Because while the prophets of yore raved like madmen, lost in the silent music around them, intoxicated by the spirits burning inside them, possessed by the word of God burning in their bones, it is the sage, the chacham, who with the power of their soft and steady reasoning is able to take that word and make sense of it, articulate it, build upon it, and turn it into something practical and actionable for thousands for generations to come. 
to turn it from nivuah to halacha, from prophecy to practice, from a burning word into a living word, from an intoxicated murmuring into a path to the living God. The prophet in Maimonides' account is the one who hears and repeats the secret, but the sage is the one who has the capacity to decode and interpret the words of the prophet. And while the sage never fully replaces the original prophetic message, it is they who interpret it, and when the interpretive tradition is lost, it is Maimonides the sage who sets out bravely to replace the tradition with spontaneous reconstruction. And as we see in some of his future students like Abraham Abulafia, the road that leads from reconstructing the meaning of the prophets to the construction of a new prophecy is not very long at all. And this is just what Maimonides sets out to do for Judaism as a whole. He sets out to reconstruct the secrets that had been passed down from generation to generation and then lost the secret interpretation of the Torah. And he writes as much repeatedly throughout the guide that the primary objective of the guide is to explain the traditions of Masa Bereshit and Masa Merkava, the account of creation and the account of the divine chariot, the mysteries of the Torah, as he himself acknowledges. The logic by which he does so runs as follows. If human reason in any age has the power to grasp metaphysical truths and true conceptions about God, and that's an if, then the truth revealed to Moses and Ezekiel cannot be different than the same truth discoverable a thousand years later or a thousand years before. The only difference might be the degree of truth discovered or revealed to the individual, but the truth itself would be the same, unchanged seemingly by age or circumstance. To lay out the propositions here a little more clearly, if there exists self-evident or demonstrably irrefutable truths, and if the word of God is true and the Torah is the word of God, and if truth is one and the same everywhere, it follows then that the true interpretation of the Torah must be one that agrees and coheres with that which is demonstrably true, whether it be a proposition of the sages of Israel or of Athens. Which is why Maimonides says both that one can come to know the secrets of the Torah from a master passed down to them from generation to generation, or on one's own accord, following the inferences from one part of it to the other, either through conclusive demonstrative proof, when that is possible, or through persuasive argumentation. And by doing so, one comes to apprehend the true essence of what previously seemed or was taught to them as parables and metaphors. If it seems to you like Maimonides is writing here from experience, you'd be right, because the next thing that he writes a little later on in the guide is that his knowledge of the secrets is not based on divine revelation, nor did he receive the tradition from a teacher, but that which I know of this regard, writes Maimonides, has been derived from a combination of the words of our prophets and sages combined with my own philosophical inference and deduction. In Maimonides' conception, the truth of religion and the truth of philosophy, of revelation and of reason, are not and cannot be two different truths. There is only one truth for him. And Maimonides saw it as his role with the tools of philosophy to reinterpret the truth of religion, particularly when the latter he believed had been lost. To take things one step further, Maimonides' belief was still more radical yet. Maimonides believed that the innermost, deepest, truest meaning of the biblical texts and of divine revelation could only be properly understood 
after having been interpreted philosophically and rationalistically at the hands of the sage, the Chacham. The Navi had to be transmitted through the Chacham in order for the truth to be fullest. And in a point which did not sit well at all for many of his contemporaries, and also bothers people until today, Maimonides believed that the best philosophical tools to understand the true metaphysical implications of the word of God echoing from Sinai to Jerusalem were those crafted by the hands of the sages of Olympia and Athens, Socrates, Plato, and above all Aristotle, as interpreted by the Muslim philosophers of Andalusia. You can well imagine that this was a bit of a shock to the system, particularly to those who didn't believe that Judaism's esoteric traditions had ever been lost in the first place, or better yet, believe themselves to be the very custodians of those traditions. This, in the opinion of Moshe, Dell, and others, as we discussed in earlier episodes, may have been just what prompted the mystics of Judaism in the 13th century to unite together and come out of their centuries-long hiding to begin to publish and teach what they believed was Judaism's authentic, indigenous, mystical tradition. When the generation's leading rabbinic legal and philosophical figure, namely Maimonides, begins to replace your tradition with what you see as nothing less than pagan and Muslim philosophy, it might just mean that you've been hiding the secrets a little too well, kind of like when you're that good at hide-and-seek as a kid that all of the seekers ditched you and went home ages ago, and I'm definitely not talking from experience here. Anyways, so this little let's go rediscover the lost secrets of Judaism with the help of Aristotle that Maimonides was attempting in the guide, according to Altman, did not go down so well with the Kabbalists, who believed themselves to be the rightful heirs of that secret tradition. They didn't think it was lost at all, and they didn't think it needed to be rediscovered with the help of a Greek philosopher, no less. Although, despite vociferously rejecting both his premises and conclusions, of loss and reconstruction, many of the Kabbalists actually very much liked Maimonides' method of the rational interpretation of the secrets of Judaism, and they adopted it in their own work, which opened up whole new vistas for Jewish mysticism. For many Kabbalists, it opened up the permission to begin exploring Jewish mysticism in relationship with philosophy, a juxtaposition which bore some incredibly fruitful work throughout the centuries. We see this new relationship between mysticism and philosophy, this new attitude in Kabbalah following Maimonides, exemplified in Jewish mystics such as Nachmanides, Abraham Avalafia, Moshe de Leon, and others. And what they produce by combining mysticism and philosophy, mysticism and rationality, is nothing less than stunning. But coming back to our main storyline here, Moses Maimonides himself. Maimonides saw the highest philosophical, metaphysical truths discovered by the Greeks of the past and the Muslims of his day, the best philosophy available to him, to be commensurate with the truths shared by the sages of Judaism, and found the tools of philosophy to be the most apt at providing a rational, even demonstrable interpretation of the prophetic secrets, and further yet, believed that philosophy and rationality itself could be used to facilitate an experiential relationship with God, an encounter with the divine, as we said earlier. Which is why, perhaps, Maimonides refers to Neo-Aristotelian metaphysics as Masemrekava, the workings of the divine chariot, elevating rational metaphysics to Judaism's highest rung of mystical speculation, equating metaphysics with the apprehension of God. 
What is it to be a philosopher other than to pursue wisdom wherever one finds it, be it in Aristotle or in the prophets of Israel, and even better yet, when they can be demonstrated to be reaching the same truth? This conflation of philosophy and mysticism results in something very strange indeed. Maimonides, by venturing to reconstruct the lost traditions of the secrets of the Torah with his guide, ends up taking on a quasi-mystical position. By seeking to start a new chain of initiates, he becomes a sage himself, a master of the tradition. But now Maimonides, the master of a new tradition, or the resurrector of an old tradition, faces a peculiar challenge. He's labored for years, decades perhaps even, to reconstruct these lost secrets of Israel, but now he's got a problem in his hands. He's not allowed to share them publicly, and he's sure as day not allowed to write them down in a book for anyone who wants to read them. Remember that these secrets, as Maimonides repeats many times throughout the guide and his Mishnah Torah, were only allowed to be taught to one worthy student at a time, and even then couldn't be taught outright, but only in mere chapter headings, hints, and if they could figure out the rest for themselves, then they were worthy. Otherwise, they would just remain scribbles on a page. This, if you remember, was the original reason why the secret tradition was lost. Maimonides, having now believed to reconstruct and rediscover the tradition, faces the same challenge, how to communicate and transmit the secrets forward. Maimonides laments out loud to his student, how can I call your attention to that which seems evident, painfully obvious, and perfectly clear to me, without violating the prohibition of telling over the secrets? What Maimonides does, in Zev Warren Harvey's opinion, is to invent a new genre of literature, the literary puzzle. Maimonides writes his famous philosophical text, The Guide Containing Ostensibly These Secrets, in the form of a series of enigmatic letters to a single student, riddled with intentional internal contradictions, intentionally written out of order, with its topics scattered and entangled throughout, as he writes in his introduction, following the exact parameters and restrictions set by the sages delineating how these secrets were to be transmitted to one worthy student at a time, and even then not in full orderly detail, but only enigmatically in chapter headings, leaving the student to figure out the rest of themselves if they were worthy. Maimonides follows these exact parameters in telling over the secrets of the guide. Why, otherwise, does he write such a confusing philosophical work? Another way of seeing this is that instead of laying things out in the open, which Maimonides is forbidden from doing, Maimonides finds his solution in guiding the reader on their own path, initiating the reader on the very same solo journey, the road of discovery that he himself traversed into the secret terrain. An arduous journey through the dark forest for the veteran sage or beginner student alike, in which the truth is glimpsed for but a moment and then concealed again, a lucid vision of the terrain in one moment, obscure riddles and parables in the next. Maimonides tells his reader in his introduction to part three of the guide that he has struck the perfect balance, seeming to be merely explaining the meaning of the words of the prophet Ezekiel's vision of the divine chariot, as if he was doing nothing more than summarizing or translating them from one language to the other, but for the correct intended audience, the keen and worthy student who reads his words carefully, that which has become clear and obvious to me, writes Maimonides, will become clear and obvious to them, and nothing in it will remain hidden from them. Allowing him to abide 
by both his responsibilities as a law-abiding Jew to conceal the secrets of Judaism and as a teacher to teach them. Maimonides then beckons the reader to pay close attention to the chapters following outlining this grand, noble, and sublime subject, the stake upon which everything hangs and the pillar upon which everything rests. And concludes by saying that if one studies this text diligently, all shall become clear to them and nothing of it shall remain hidden. Maimonides in his guide is hiding his secrets in plain sight, hiding it so confidently that he's more than happy to say, here lies the secret, come and get it. I hope by expounding on Maimonides' mysticism and pointing towards his secrets here in the public light of day for anyone on the internet to see that we haven't blown Maimonides' carefully constructed cover and given away any of his secrets. Don't worry, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. From this theory which we just laid out, just to drive home this point one last time, we see again a demonstration of Maimonides' deep marriage between his mysticism and rationalism. Maimonides rejects a mysticism that would give free reign to the imagination, and instead replaces it with a deeply rational form of mysticism, his best attempt at understanding the Ma'asem Merkava tradition, the ancient mysteries of Judaism, guided by the best science and philosophy of his day. Maimonides takes the lost esoteric secrets of Judaism, and with the tools of rationality, rediscovers them and repackages them in the nomenclature of philosophy, and shows how the best of philosophy, when executed properly, leads the individual directly into a contemplative life, filled with a consuming love and awe for God, culminating in an ecstatic, erotic embrace of the divine, guiding one to a life of love and care for others, all without taking one's foot off the grounds of rationalism for even but a moment. It's safe to say that the Judaism that Moses Maimonides was born into was, thanks to him, not the same Judaism he left behind when he passed away from this world. Both in practice and theory, law and philosophy, halacha and hashkafa, his solemn tomb in Tiberius reads, from Moses to Moses none rose like Moses. And in many ways he really was a second Moses, a man who, from Egypt, led his people to re-encounter the living voice of God, a man who worked his entire life to preserve and redisclose a complete picture of the two halves of Judaism, her body and soul, the exoteric laws of Judaism via his Mishnah Torah, and the esoteric secrets of Judaism, the inner path to God through his guide for the perplexed. Each one a work of prophetic proportions, the guide, as we've laid out in great detail here, attempting to restore the lost traditions of Israel and his Mishnah Torah, no less, cutting through centuries of thorny Talmudic argumentation to present his reader in clear and lucid Hebrew a complete guide to the practice of Judaism, so that one would need no other book in their library at all to know the law that they may keep it, but the five books of Moses, the written Torah, and Maimonides' Mishnah Torah, the complete encapsulation of the oral Torah as he writes in the introduction to that text. Between these two books, the Mora and the Mishnah Torah, the guide to the perplexed and the guide to the practicing, lies in Maimonides' vision the complete instruction for both body and soul of Judaism, an exhaustive reinstantiation of the mosaic project which bellowed from Sinai 
if there ever was one. The question of whether Maimonides was a mystic, I think at the end of the day, funnily enough after this whole series, is actually a trivial one. And we here at Seekers of Unity are not interested in trivia. We actually don't care whether an Andalusian thinker from the 12th century can be identified as a mystic or not, even if they sure happen to be Judaism's most significant philosophical mind, or at least insofar as mainstream Jewish Orthodox historiography goes. The real question is, what does Maimonides, this undoubtedly giant of a man and genius of a soul, mean for us today in the 21st century, when we no longer operate with the philosophical categories, the metaphysics and epistemologies or sciences that were vogue and meaningful in his day? I really don't think there's many people alive today that stay up late at night losing sleep to the problems of the active intellect and how one might unite with God through it. Although truth be told, of the few people alive today that are worried about these questions enough to stay up late at night, there are probably a few of you here in the Seekers of Unity crowd. But while the specifics of Maimonides' philosophical thinking by and large no longer hold purchase on the modern mind, rare exceptions and seekers aside, it's clear that the principles that play in his thinking are as relevant now as they ever were. The reason we chose to spend all this time and effort unpacking Maimonides' thought is because we believe that Maimonides does have something important to say to us here and now today. The first thing that Maimonides does for us is to shine some new light on an often misunderstood, maligned and distorted category, namely mysticism. Many people today equate mysticism with hocus-pocus, magic and trickery, superstition and supernaturalism, something for the naive and weak-minded, for the dark and dingy corners of history and society, and preclude from themselves the possibility that it might have something meaningful to offer without ever giving it a chance to present its case for an open-minded, fair listening. It is through Maimonides, as well as through many other terrific minds in history, that we encounter a philosophical mysticism at its finest, a mysticism that cannot be dismissed a priori as nonsense by a rationally, intellectually honest person. Maimonides' mysticism is one that invites critical inquiry, skepticism and rationality. It is, as he presents it, a rational path of inquiring into the nature of reality itself, a chance to think about ourselves, the world around us, and life's greatest questions with coherence and rigor, with humility and kindness. To think about what it might mean to come closer to and unite with ourselves, with each other, with the world around us, nature in all of her fragile beauty, and perhaps even with God, if that's a word that works for you, or if you prefer, with the active intellect. The second thing that Maimonides does, besides for helping us rehabilitate mysticism as a category, is that he demonstrates the ability and need for us to harmonize and bring into union our deepest inner strivings, the mystical impulse inside the human heart, together with our God-given rationality and critical thinking, utilizing our minds not against our hearts, but in tandem together with it, so that the strivings of our heart don't fall away into realms of fantasy and delusion, but remain deeply integrated and in touch with reality. And conversely, Maimonides gives us permission to allow the warm blood pumping from our inner feeling heart to reach back to our brains and minds, to bring it from coldness to life. He's not ashamed to be openly lovesick for God, for reality, even while being cerebral 
analyzing contradictions and quoting sources, he's not fractured into one cold thinking person who has to hide his emotions, but he allows them to come together and to produce something more magnificent for it. Maimonides further demonstrates for us how not to be afraid of the sciences and philosophy of one's day, but rather to make use of the best of the sciences and humanities available to us, to bring them in as allies in our service of God and humanity, to seek and accept truth and wisdom wherever we may find it, to allow the best thinking of one's day to cultivate within us an awe and understanding of the majestic universe in which we participate, and to nurture within us a feeling of compassion and responsibility for all of her inhabitants. Whereas in the contemporary polarized discourse, one is typically either on the side of religion, mysticism, spirituality, or opposed to it vociferously on the side of science, rationality, and philosophy, Maimonides guides us a path between them beyond this narrow binary dichotomy into an expansive universe where truth, however and wherever it manifests, reigns supreme, where a quest for awe, silence, mystery, love, service, worship, and union is not other or separate from the quest for reason and logic, knowledge and wisdom. They are one and the same. They are both the quest for truth. And finally, Maimonides shows us how not to be afraid to reinvent a mystical path to God, a path to ourselves and a path to each other, if we feel that the paths we've collectively inherited have become lost, ineffectual, or genuinely outdated. To have the bravery, audacity, and humility to stand up for ourselves, to take hold of the heart and mind God gave us and put them to work, combining the best wisdom of the past with the sharpest insight to the present, to rediscover a path that actually works. The question for us today is, are we brave enough to reinvent new spiritual practices and mystical traditions for ourselves? to take responsibility to breathe life into the traditions we've inherited, to reinterpret them for a new day and age, as every age must. And we might very well make mistakes along the way, and that's okay, even despite the audaciousness of his Herculean undertaking, even the great Maimonides humbly admits that he may have made mistakes in his reconstruction of Judaism's lost secrets and gotten things wrong at times, but it didn't stop him from trying. Maimonides outlines in his introduction to part 3, the climax of the guide, why the secret tradition of Judaism was lost. It was not the fault of those who bore the secrets, they were just doing their job, they were keeping it secret. Its obsolescence was baked into the system, and its supersession hardwired into its own programming. It was unavoidable, writes Maimonides, for the explanation of these mysteries was always communicated orally in secrecy. And was never committed to writing. And it perhaps was intended to be so, for only that which can die, and can be reborn, lives forever. And as a result, Maimonides found himself between a rock and a hard place. He's called to play secret midwife to a tradition which is painfully obvious and perfectly clear to him, at least in his moments of clarity, at other times he's more ambivalent about this knowledge and how much he has of it. And yet, he's forbidden by the very same tradition to utter the secrets in a way that the listener might understand them. 
Even the Great Maimonides, it seems, is not absolved of the design pattern of the secret itself, which must always remain a secret, but in doing so, cannot remain, and therefore must always remain, because it must return and never remain, the secret that is only insofar as it cannot be. Many in Maimonides' position may have buckled under the pressure of secrecy and self-censure and remained silent. But the reason that we still speak his name today is because of the decision he made with these very words. If I were to abstain from writing down what appeared to me so clearly, on that day that I would die, as I inevitably shall, that knowledge would die with me, and thus I would inflict great injury on you, my student, my reader, and on all those who share your perplexity. I would be guilty of withholding the truth from those who seek and deserve it, and of depriving an heir of their rightful inheritance. If one is to take the fatal gamble, it is better to swing and miss than to do nothing at all, because, in this case, to do nothing is to be a thief. As Maimonides rules across in his Mishnah Torah, that whereas a prophet who gives false prophecy is merely put to death by a human court, a prophet who willfully suppresses that prophecy, who has the word within them and chooses not to share it, they are liable for the death penalty not in a human court, but in the supernal court. They will be held accountable by God alone. As the verse warns, Anochi adrosh me'imai, for I, God, will demand it of you. Just think for a moment where Judaism would be today if it weren't for people like Maimonides and Achmanides, Cardavero and Luria, the Ramchal and the Maharal, the Baal Shem Tov and Rav Kook, the people who dared breathe life into Judaism and restore her soul, not that they all saw eye to eye about how to go about doing this, but without them, I don't know where we would be today, or if we would be here at all. Maybe, just maybe, if we're able to follow their charge and challenge, allowing them to guide our minds in the direction of the great mystery which we can never fully comprehend, but follow the path that they painstakingly laid for us nonetheless, with courage, perseverance, hope, resilience, and tenderness. Maybe, just maybe, in our very own lifetimes, we might just see the day when the earth will be full with the knowledge of God, of unity and kindness, as the waters cover the sea. As the prophet Isaiah says, And until then, we keep seeking. I would like to thank all of you who joined us, not just for this class, but for the entire series. It has been such a wild journey and ride. I think we started to produce the series four months ago. Thank you to all of my good friends who helped me along the project with my research, with chipping in and with looking at the work and checking it over and telling me when I made mistakes. I'm going to pop up some of the names up here. Thank you to Alyssa for her beautiful thumbnails that she made and for always being a great sounding board whenever I was stuck and needed someone to try and test out the material on. Alyssa, thank you for being the perpetual guinea pig and talented designer, bringing your gift of color and beauty to the project. Thank you to the patrons, of course, who without their work, we could not afford to keep this project going. If you would like to and have the means to, please do consider joining them because we hope to do more work like this, continuing on from Maimonides to many other great moments, people, thinkers, and thoughts to try and bring some of their spirit into this day and age 
because God knows we need it. We have a bunch of material that's been accumulating throughout the series. Some of it we began to put out meanwhile, but some of that will still come soon. We have some fun stuff. We have some debates that we recorded, some live classes, and we're beginning to plan the next series. I can't tell you yet what it is. It's going to be very fun and exciting. We also started a Discord. I'll put a link somewhere here. A place for the community to come together and not just have a monologue where I talk at you, but a place to respond and talk with one another and each other and a place to really mobilize and get our efforts together to do something good for this world. I'm very, very excited about it. And I really do hope you join. There's already a whole bunch of seekers who have joined us there. And it's just been a very beautiful, fun and kind place. Please do come stop over, say hi, introduce yourself and see what conversation is going on. I think that about covers it all. <laughs> Catch you next week.